Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Again, welcome to the second hour of Mornings with Carmen on the 17th of May. Little shout out to my nephew, Larry. Happy birthday, baby. Um, Where in the word are you today? I am in Romans chapter 15, verse 13. You just need a verse to hang your day on. Here's one. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May the hope of God fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Hope. Hope is uh, one of the three virtues we think of, faith, hope, and love. We recognize or acknowledge that the greatest of these is love and faith, I note, gets its own sola, gets its own Reformation sola. So what about hope? Is hope like, you know, the third wheel in the faith, hope, and love virtue Trilogy? Well, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Psalm 71.5 reads, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Certainly Jesus is my hope, and my hope in Jesus springs eternal. Let's be reminded today that Christian hope is not some flimsy, misty, unsubstantiated thing. Quite the contrary. Christian hope is substantial. It's guaranteed. It's sealed. It's waiting. Christian hope is a confident, rooted expectation that God's going to make good on all of his promises. And God being who he is, well, you can count on it. Christians operate in the midst of a lot of uncertainty, just like everybody else. But we operate in the midst of those uncertainties with the certainty of a settled hope. That's actually, I think, what makes us profoundly different in the midst of what's going on in the world today. So let me encourage you to um, read again what Paul says uh, in Romans chapter 5. You know, like we don't get to Romans 15 without, you know, reading through the first 14 chapters of Romans. And so in Romans chapter 5, there there are some words about uh, what it means to live as people of hope that I think are worth circling back around to today in consideration of what it means to uh, believe to believe in hope, to be filled with all joy and peace in believing. Um, So in Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about the fact that we have been made as righteous as Jesus through faith in him. We have no hope of being in God's kingdom or being in relationship with him, except if we are as righteous as Jesus. And the only way that happens is that Christ exchanges his perfection for us. So don't let that pass by. The very righteousness of Christ is ours as people who are in Christ and in whom Christ dwells by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that should lead us to worship. It should lead us to a confidence in living in the world. Um, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's our storyline. That's our theme. 
That's our song. Paul also says in Romans chapter 5 um, that we have peace with God because of Jesus. It, it doesn't say that we, you know, have peace, like circumstantial peace. It says that we have peace with God. And if you got peace with God, you can be a person of peace in the midst of anything. If you're at peace with God, you can be a person of peace in the midst of anything. You can literally have the peace which passes understanding. Paul goes on in Romans 5 to talk about rejoicing and suffering. He also talks about growing in perseverance and character and hope. And so let me just encourage you today um, to be a person of substantial hope. And let me pray over us the way Paul did over his fellow Christians in Rome. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Next up today, we've got Dr. Thomas Schreiner. Uh, We're going to talk about hyperbole and how hyperbole often dulls our discernment in the conversations of the day. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Dr. Tom Schreiner. For those of you um, who maybe have missed other conversations that I have uh, had with him, he is the James Buchanan Harrison Professor of New Testament and Interpretation, Associate Dean for Scripture and Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, And we talk with him every time he publishes a book, but sometimes he just writes great stuff that's posted online, and this is one of those occasions. So we're talking today about a piece posted at thegospelcoalition.org, where Dr. Schreiner is talking about hyperbole. Tom, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Uh, Thanks, Carmen. It's great to be with you again. Well, it's wonderful to have you. Um, So what's the observation that you are making in terms of our our cultural conversations today? Yeah, I uh, I think there's a tendency to exaggerate our point, maybe especially when we're talking about people we disagree with. So we exaggerate the point to make the, the, the problem worse than it is. And uh, actually, I just listened to your little segment on hope, and, and I, I think it's actually connected to hope. We, we, we want to be heard, and so we uh, overstress our point. Instead of hoping in God and telling the truth straight out as it is without, without exaggerating. Yeah, hope could never be exaggerated, right? I mean, I can't. I can't. Uh, there's no way I could speak in hyperbolic terms about the hope I have in Jesus Christ because uh, it's totally beyond uh, my my ability to uh, to speak of in ways that are sufficient to it. But in every other area, you're exactly right. I um I could use hyperbole or exaggeration as a rhetorical device to get people to stay tuned to tune in, to tune someone else out, to tell a story in such a way that's going to be clickbait um, and that will provoke them to probably get like physically hot um, on certain topics. And I, I feel like that's what you are trying to point us to. Yeah, there, there are so many voices out there. We all recognize that. Uh, we, we want to be heard. 
And so how, how, how are we hurt? Well, we, we engage in hyperbole. We, we, we can exaggerate. And, and that way we, we may be heard, but of course the problem is uh, now are we being dishonest? Are we not, are, are we not really telling the truth anymore? And that, that's why I came back to hope again, because really we're putting our hope in ourselves. We're trying to advance ourselves or our cause by uh, saying more than is warranted, more than is uh, actually the truth. But if we, but if we, but if we trust in God, we can trust that as we tell the truth, he will confirm the truth and validate the truth. The truth, the truth will win out. We, we don't have to say more than is true to get likes or, or whatever we're uh, desiring. Let's, um, let's talk for a minute about how Jesus used hyperbole, because there are certainly um, places where when we read what Jesus said about things, we say to ourselves, yeah, he, he, was, he was speaking hyperbolically there. Can you address that? Yes, uh, that, that's a great point, because hyperbole is, is not always wrong. Sometimes it's really helpful. I mean, when Jesus was talking about the danger of sexual sin, he said, you, you need to gouge out your eye or, or cut off your hand. I mean, the, the, that is clearly hyperbole. And it's, uh, tragically, some people have very few, but have taken that literally. But but the the hyperbole. What's the purpose of hyperbole? The purpose is to to shock us into action there. And and Jesus is telling us, don't don't uh, don't coddle sexual sin. It's it's deadly serious. So the hyperbole can can stab us awake and can alert us to uh, to a to a severe problem that we're we we're, we may be taking for granted. I'm going to continue this conversation with Dr. Tom Schreiner about uh, hyperbole and how we we really need to be very, very discerning in terms of how we use exaggeration in our discourse today. Um, it has a dulling effect over time. We're going to take up that subject when we return. We'll be right back. When I'm entering into uh, a discourse uh, about a point of disagreement with another person, do I characterize them as uh, positively as possible? Do I characterize their position as fairly as possible? Or do I use really dysphemistic hyperbole um, to exaggerate everything to have them, you know, be viewed in the worst possible light. That That's really the conversation or part of the conversation that we're having today with Dr. Tom Schreiner. Um, Tom, talk about the dulling effect that the, the constant use of hyperbole in our discourse today has on us. If, if we uh, exaggerate and engage in hyperbole in describing other people's positions, and, and it's happening constantly around us, the as the as the volume increases, we're we're sort of screaming and yelling and saying, "Here's the problem. Here's the here's the defection from the truth." Well, after a while, people don't don't hear us. Uh, they 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 simply hear the screaming and yelling, and they and they shut it out. And this is really my main concern because the scriptures often call us to be alert to false teaching, but if we're exaggerating views that aren't false teaching, just to make our point, 
when real false teaching appears, we're, we're dulled. We, we, we may not hear it. So, right, the famous little story, when if we constantly cry wolf, when the wolf finally arrives, and Paul actually warns us about wolves in Acts 20, false teaching coming in, when the wolves actually arrive, we, we, we may not hear it because our, our senses have been dulled from exaggerating problems that aren't at the same level. You bring to mind, um, for me, the exchange of Elijah with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, where they just keep shouting louder and louder and keep doing things that are self-harming. And, you know, they're just, it's just escalating and escalating and escalating. And, and in reality, you know, it, it, what they're what they're seeking is never ultimately going to happen because they have put their faith in uh, in a false god. I see that happening in our culture where um, the discourse will and 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 the provocation sometimes comes from the faithful. I mean, you know, Elijah certainly provoked the prophets of Baal to scream louder and to cut themselves more. Um, and so sometimes the provocation is also not healthy. And and so can you talk a little bit about that, how we bait and provoke um, maybe those on the other side of an issue to actually scream louder and, and even harm themselves? Yeah, it, I think it comes back again to, to, to loving one another, to caring mm-hmm. uh, for one another. I mean, when we're in a debate with other people in, in the public square, we need to remember Jesus' commandment to, to love our neighbor. And what it means to love our neighbor is, even if we disagree, to listen to them respectfully, to, to honor differences of opinion, and, and then to represent them accurately in the public square. Because if we, we do not represent them accurately in the public square, we're, we're bearing false witness we're, we're lying about where they are. And at the end of the day, to bring a pragmatic word in, at the end of the day, that, that will not succeed. Uh, the tr- we, we have confidence in the truth. And, and Elijah is a good example. He, you know, he pours water on the altar. He calmly <laughs> prays to the Lord. He, he, knows, he, he knows that God will defend the truth. Elijah doesn't have to defend the truth, finally. He speaks the truth. He's bold. He's courageous, obviously. But he knows that what is backing him up is is the one true God. That's exactly right. So it's that confidence in which we live and move and find our being. Let's talk a little bit about what it requires to appropriate, appropriately use rhetoric and sometimes sometimes hyperbole when it's appropriate. Um, all of that requires uh, good judgment or discernment. It also requires self-discipline. Yes. And and I think here, you know, we want to be immersed in the Scriptures because the Scriptures do use hyperbole. There there are situations that where we have a crisis. You know, we talked about earlier the danger of uh, sexual sin that Jesus, Jesus uses hyperbole. And, and we find it elsewhere in the scriptures. And so if we, if we use hyperbole correctly, we use it in particular situations to emphasize uh, truth, truth is at stake or life and death are at stake. So we, we use it according to the scriptures, 
according to the truth of God's word and in in the right situations and we control ourselves and we don't use it inappropriately that is we don't lie about another person's position we tell the truth about the other person's position then then God can use it to keep us from error to keep us walking in the in the right paths Dr. Tom Schreiner um, writes consistently um, on not only scripture, but um, but theology. Tom, what are you working on right now? Where are you I, in the Word, as we like to say here? I'm, I'm actually working on a, a, a commentary on the book of Revelation. Amen. Oh, we'll, we'll anticipate that. So na- just so that you know, next up, we've got Christopher Ash on, and he's going to be talking about um, the book that he wrote on on Job— and I thought that it would make a nice segue for me to simply read um, your your commendation of his work. So could I do that? Could I read back to you what you wrote about uh, Christopher Ash's book? Absolutely. I love Christopher. So uh, Dr. Schreiner says, we find here the work of a wise veteran pastor, of one who knows life and who knows the scriptures. Ash's exposition is brief but meaty, profound but accessible, and clear without being simplistic. I can't think of a better introduction to the book of Job, and Ash rightly reads Job in light of the entire Bible, in light of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Readers will be instructed, challenged, comforted, and wiser from reading this wonderful exposition. Um, Tom, anything you want to add to that before we uh, move into our conversation with Christopher Ash about the book of Job? Job is a difficult book, and I think I think Christopher is a is a wonderful guide, and and as I said. You know, when you're talking about suffering, you want to you want to hear from a veteran pastor, a pastor who knows mm-hmm. suffering himself, and and Christopher is that person. Yeah, I just love that. So I thought it was, um, you know, quite a. Isn't that a a good gift of God today that He would design um, to have Christopher uh, come up following my conversation with you, and um, and that you would know him and have read this book. So thank you so much. Well, it's great to be with you again, Carmen. Thanks for your work. Always a blessing to talk with you. That's uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner. You can find him at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. You can also find him on all the socials. We'll be right back. It is not April 15th, and yet it is tax day. Yeah. So today's tax day. Today's the day. If you haven't done it already, get it done. Uh, yeah, today's the day. Um, it's, it's also Pack Rat Day, Cherry Cobbler Day, Graduation Tassel Day, Walnut Day, and Do Something Good for Your Neighbor Day. <clears throat> so um, I suspect you could take walnuts and cherry cobbler to your neighbor, uh, and that could be the nice thing that you do for your neighbor. Uh, for the Christian, every day is Good Neighbor Day. Okay, so let me just note this. It's, we don't wait for a national day to do something good for our neighbors. Every day is Good Neighbor Day for the Christian. Um, thinking about what Jesus, uh, the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 10, when the expert of the law stood up uh, to test him and said, you know, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered, well, what is written in the law? I mean, how do you read it? Which is interesting, right? Jesus doesn't just ask him to quote scripture. He asks him, you know, how he understands scripture. What's his interpretation of it? That's a, that might be an interesting, provocative conversation. Not just what does the Bible say, but how do I understand it? Uh, and the, and the teacher of the law said, love your name, love, 
the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So he gives the first and the second commandments. And Jesus replies to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And then um, wanting to justify himself, Scripture tells us, the teacher of the law went on to ask Jesus another question. Well, who is my neighbor? And that's where we get um, the, the story about the good, what we know as the Good Samaritan, right? The man going from Jerusalem to Jericho, attacked by robbers, stripped of his clothes, beaten, left for dead. Uh, a priest happens by and passes on the other side. So too a Levite passes by uh, on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he was traveling, saw the man and took pity on him, went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine upon him, um, put him on his own donkey, brought him to an inn to take care of him, paid uh, for the man's the man's ongoing care, and if it wasn't enough, promised to you know to pay the innkeeper more um, to look after him, assuring the innkeeper that he would reimburse him for the extra expenses on his way back home. So, which of these Jesus says was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the the you know the teacher of the law rightly replies the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus simply says. Go and do likewise. Who is our neighbor? Well, by Jesus's testimony, the one today whom we see who is in need of mercy. Do we give it or do we pass by on the other side? We got a conversation with Christopher Ash up next. Every person needs to hear a wonderful. Here's why. Companies spend billions of dollars to convince us that we are chubby, smelly, ugly, and out of date. Inadequacy indwells a billion hearts. Would you distribute encouragement? Will you make some happiness happen? Will you remind humanity that we are made in God's image, that we are chosen and destined and loved? Start by listening intently. Ask someone to tell you his or her story. Give the rarest of gifts your full attention. Praise abundantly. Biblical encouragement is no casual, kind word, but rather a premeditated resolve to lift the spirit of another person. Everyone needs a cheerleader. Give the gift that God loves to give, and that is the gift of encouragement. This is Max Locato, and this is How Happiness Happens. So Dr. Christopher Ash joins us now. He is a pastor. He is an author. He's the writer in residence at Tyndall House in Cambridge. Um, he preaches. He speaks. He loves people. He's the director of the Proclamation Trust Cornhill Training Course. Um, and according to Dr. Tom Schreiner, who we just had on, um, Christopher has written a most excellent book, on the book of Job. And we are talking with Christopher Ash about that book now. Christopher, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm very glad to be with you, Carmen. Tom Schreiner had very nice things to say about you and um, and this book. And one of the things that he pointed out was how important it is that you write this out of uh, a pastor's experience. So talk about the experience of the book of Job, not just the reading or study of it. That's a really good question. Tom Schreiner is a gracious and kind and generous man. But it's true that my studies 
on Job have arisen or been accompanied by real experience. I first preached the book not in any particular suffering, uh, a small church where I was pastor. I preached a series on Job because I thought it would be a good thing to try to do. But then gradually things developed. And at the time, I was writing a full commentary for Crossway, the Preaching the Word uh, commentary on Job, Job, the Wisdom of the Cross. I, I'd written part of it. And then in God's providence and kindness, I think, I went through what I think you would call some kind of a nervous breakdown um, in the midst of writing it. There was something strangely appropriate about that, but it did mean that when I was walking through the book and writing on it, uh, it, it was accompanied by um, uh, an experience of some darkness. So I, I, in some measure, I've recovered from that, but you never forget that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I I, uh, I sat next to a woman yesterday um, in Sunday school who is also a dear friend and sister in Christ, and um, she uh, she has been in a Job-like season in her life, and she noted mm -hmm. it. I mean, she noted it. And yet, let me just tell you, she sat there yesterday radiant, and I do mm -hmm. think there 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 is a way that believers. Um, who know that our Redeemer lives. Like, we know the gospel that Job also knew, right? I know that my Redeemer lives, that in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed and my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I, not another, um, and how my heart yearns within me. Like, we can experience the gospel um, in, in our study of Job, Oh, we certainly can. We, in all its paradoxes, uh, the paradox that we can be joyful and confident and assured and glad to belong to Jesus, and yet at the same time be weeping and struggling and going through darkness. It's one of the strange things of the Christian life that, that, that both can happen at the same, at the same time. But you're absolutely right. And Job 19, which you quoted from, uh, it's just wonderful, uh, th th this ray of bright gospel light shines into Job's experience. Marvellous. We're talking with Christopher Ashe about uh, his, his book, Trusting God in the Darkness, A Guide to Understanding the Book of Job. Um, you try to give us in here what you describe as signposts uh, along the main roads, it, it, you have structured this in such a way to help the Christian reader um, experience experience the book of Job. And, and talk about that. Talk about the approach that you take in this book, because it is different than other approaches to the study of Job. Yes, it, it is. I've felt, well, I suppose it's obvious to anybody who's tried any pattern of reading through the Bible that the book of Job is dense and puzzling. You know, times you, you read through and you think, oh, I'm reading and I don't quite know who's saying what or what it means or how it fits together. And many people won't have time to read through a, a, a detailed commentary all the way through. So I thought, well, let's try to let's try to do some pathways in. For example, I have one chapter which looks at Job's three comforters, supposed so-called comforters, and has a look at why they say what they say and what they think. And of course, I simplify 
you don't look at everything they say. But I, I hope that reading that chapter means someone can read the comforter's speeches and begin to have some idea of what's going on and what to what to make of it. So that's my idea, really, to open up the book rather than just um, th- th- themes from the book. I'm so glad that you um, that you talk about uh, that you just lifted up the what not to say to the suffering believer. Um, so that's chapter four of Christopher Ash's book, uh, what not to say to the suffering believer. And when I looked at the scope of what you were going to cover, Job four through twenty seven, um, you know, right? That's that's quite a big bite to take. But then you actually go in chapter five, you deal with that same portion of scripture, Job four through twenty seven. Um, and talk about the the two marks of a real believer. I thought that was an interesting approach as well. Like you gave yourself the liberty to go back and cover the same terrain twice, understanding and looking for and discussing two different important thread lines. Yes, I, I hope that's helpful. I think some people have found it helpful. Focus on the three comforters and then focus on Job and see what's profoundly right about him. It's paradoxical because Job says things he shouldn't say and has to repent at the end of some of the things he said. And yet in his heart, he's he's right. He's a true believer. Whereas the three comforters, judging by God's assessment of them at the end, they badly need to become real believers and to learn from from Job. So, yes, chapters 4 to 27, you easily get lost in in the morass of those chapters. So I thought that might be a helpful way in. And I think it is. I think the book is quite um, readable, uh, not too long, not too um, inaccessible. Hope so. So we have uh, we have a listener who is um, who is raising the question, you know, that it feels like it's written as a play. We're going to talk with Christopher Ash when we come back about the drama um, of the book of Job. And yes, how it is written. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Christopher Ash about his book on uh, on Job. It's a guide to understanding the book of Job. It's entitled Trusting God in the Darkness. So, Christopher, we have a listener who's raising a question that I think uh, you, I feel certain you've heard before. Um, is this poetry? Is it narrative? Is it historical? Where do I place the book of Job in terms of um, uh, a, a literary work? That's a really good question. I see no reason why it's not historical, that that Job was a real person who lived, roughly speaking, in the age of the patriarchs, it would seem. We don't know when the book was written, but I imagine the story was told over the generations and then written up. It's certainly stylized in the sense that the, the speeches you get, Eliphaz speaks, Job replies, Bildad speaks, Job replies, Zophar speaks, Job replies, and then you go all around again. And most conversations don't work like that. So it, it may be that it's been sort of written up in a, in a, in a way that, that has that kind of dramatic structure. But there's no reason to suppose that Job didn't exist, that the events didn't happen, and that the speeches do accurately convey 
what Job and his friends and 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 supremely what God um, says and thinks about it it all. But certainly, it's an unusual. It, 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 if you did a transcript of a conversation between people, you wouldn't generally get something um, shaped like that. One of the things that I appreciate um, is the way that you paraphrase Scripture to make it more accessible to us, to help us sort of get a feel for what's happening. Um, we had a conversation here on air, I think, last week about the difference between, you know, a translation and a paraphrase. Can you reflect mm-hmm. on that for just a moment for us? Yes, certainly. I, I think I've sometimes quoted from the message, uh, which is a very lively paraphrase. You wouldn't want to use it for study, but sometimes if you want to get the feel, especially of a of a long poem, a long speech in poetry, sometimes I think a paraphrase can help just to get the feel of it. Uh, and so I think I, I think for study you want an accurate translation. Uh, that that's really close to the to the Hebrew, but but sometimes just to get a feel for it, a, a, a paraphrase can be helpful. I think there's a place for both. Well, I do too, and so I appreciate you uh, appreciate you taking note of that um, and making note of that in uh, in the way that you approach the conversation in this book as well. Um, when when we talk about study and we talk about maybe a technical commentary, this is not. A technical commentary, but this is a, but this is a study of Job. It's not, uh, it, it's, it's not light. I mean, it's substantive, but it's also not technical. Can you, can you help people understand the way I'm describing it? Yes, I, I can. I've written a, a full, fairly technical commentary, full of footnotes and endnotes and all the usual things you have in academic writing. And there's an important place for that. I think it's helpful myself when somebody who writes a more accessible, more readable book has done the serious detailed work because there's more chance that what they say is rooted in a careful study of the text. Uh, I'm always nervous when people who haven't done that um, speak about something like the Book of Job, which has all sorts of complexities. But I've tried to write it in a way that any any thinking Christian or, or not a Christian could read my book and it'll give them pathways into the into the Bible book. That's my aim. So, you know, in terms of pastoral ministry um, and each and every one of us, you know, has has this role in walking with fellow believers into and and through shadowy valleys, sometimes mm, unto death. Mm. Um, talk with us about sort of the when, when do you bring up Job and when do you not bring up Job? Uh, I think there's tremendous value in reading and studying and immersing ourselves in the book of Job precisely when we don't need it so that we've got it in our bloodstream for when we do. The trouble with acute suffering is that it we, we get numbed by it. Grief numbs us, and acute trauma can numb us. So it's very hard to hear anything. We, we, we've most of us been there at times when uh, I need someone to sit with me, but um, perhaps to weep with me. But um, 
uh, I'm not able to hear very much. So it's good to hear it first. So we've got it in our bloodstream. So I think there's real value in that. And not just to think Job is a medicine to bring out when you're sick, as it were. Uh, I think it, it raises such big questions about God and his providence and his sovereignty and his love and supremely about the Lord Jesus who fulfills the book of Job, that um, grappling with it when we don't feel we need it is just the time to do it. That would be my thought. I would completely agree. I, uh, the The language of Job is not a medicine to bring out when we're sick, um, but but a medicine that helps me see the world. I mean, it does. It mm. helps me see the reality of suffering. It helps me see the sovereignty of God. It helps me, no matter no matter where I am in my own um, experiential journey of this life, knowing Job and knowing Job's friends and knowing Job's wife and knowing Job's Savior, knowing Job's faith, knowing the gospel according to Job, um, seeing Jesus with Job, it, it helps me in... Um, in good days and, I mean, in relatively good days and in relatively bad days. Um, mm. And Job's suffering, I will tell you, helps me see things that happen um, in the lives of others and in my own life in a different way than I would if this book were not in the Bible. Yes, I think I'm sure that's right, Carmen. I was very struck when studying it and preaching it by what the Lord Jesus says in Luke's gospel to Simon Peter, that Satan has has demanded to sift you, plural, the disciples, but I've prayed for you, singular, Simon Peter. And that sifting is what Satan does with Job. In a way, it's what Satan did with the Lord Jesus who was proved to be absolutely true uh, in his sufferings. But the fact that, that, that this happens with Simon Peter and the disciples, I think he encourages us to suggest that, that Job liked things, even if they're usually less extreme, and they usually are much less extreme, um, but nonetheless that we are sifted and tested so that so that uh, the genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold, as Peter puts it, will will bring glory to God. Amen. Uh, Christopher Ash uh, here today as the author of Trusting God in the Darkness, um, but but so many things to so many. He is a, a husband and a father and a grandfather. He is a writer. He is a pastor. Christopher, thank you for joining us again today, and thank you for the great gift of this book, Trusting God in the Darkness, A Guide to Understanding the Book of Job. We appreciate you. Thank you, Carmen. Privilege for me. Thank you. We'll be right back. What do you have on tap today? What's uh, already on your agenda and your schedule? Did you make a list? Are you a checker offer of lists? I am. I will confess to that. Um, but I also know that it is essential that each and every one of us be prepared for our day to be wholly interrupted. 
And so be prepared today for God to have set a divine appointment that is not on your schedule, not on your calendar. Um, an opportunity for you to demonstrate the goodness and the greatness of God in the life of another person, an opportunity for you to be a living, uh, a living demonstration of the principles of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of the kingdoms of this earth, an opportunity for you to speak the good and gracious truth of God into the life of another person. So as we check off the list today, let us also be people who make room for God to move for God to show up and for God to use us. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.